Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week from Vancouver in British Columbia. We'll dig deep into Vancouver's past with Michael Kluckner, president of the Vancouver Historical Society. Then, a look inside the Vancouver Museum with Vivian Goslin, the director of acquisitions and curator of contemporary culture. And then, a visit with Carol Lee. She's the founder of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation as she fights to preserve the culture and the history. First up, Michael Kluckner. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. How are you, Michael? Very well. Thank you, Peter. 
So I'm a big fan of walking, and I'm a big fan of when I go to a city, I want to walk the streets. Um, not just to look up, look down, look around, because so much of the architecture is still here. So much of the original buildings are still here. So much of what made the, the, the west of North America is still here. Um, and of course, you've got pockets of neighborhoods that have, that have been preserved. Uh, and it's not, it's not about just staying at this hotel. It's about getting out of this hotel and seeing those neighborhoods that uh, you, know, you guys have worked so hard to maintain. Well, thanks. I mean, it's uh, people have a real advantage when they come here that it, this is really a very small city. It looks like a big city because it's got lots of towers. It seems to have a lot of people in it. Uh, it seems like it ought to go on for miles and miles, and it doesn't. And so you can walk from the poorest to the richest part of the city in about 25 minutes. You can uh, walk, for, walk on a seawall for miles and miles and miles around. Which I love doing. You can uh, you can find beaches. You can gaze out at people's yachts. You can find little cafes. You can do all you this. See, sort I don't want to gaze out at people's yachts. I want to be invited on them. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you figure out how to do that, let me know. I will. I will. But then, of course, you also have Stanley Park, which is just amazing. Well, Stanley Park, an extraordinary place at uh, a strategic military reserve, identified by the Royal Navy in 1860. Now. In order to, to get that as a military reserve and then later to turn it into a park, it meant kicking out a couple of villages of indigenous people. And you know, it's part of what we're coming to terms with here is how indigenous people were treated when the city got started. And I, you know, a lot of cities in North America, Australia, wherever you go, are dealing with this sort of issue. And how are you dealing with it here? Well, I, you know, in large part, there have been uh, some pretty significant chunks of territory, land that have been turned back to the three local First Nations. So reparations are happening. That's right. And they are, they are developing them in the way that they want to do, in some ways quite controversially, because these are big, big projects with big towers. But I think the thing that is most significant that people will notice is the amount of Coast Salish art that you are seeing, murals on the sides of buildings, even the manhole covers, the street storm drain covers that you will see when you're out walking on the sidewalk, yeah. look down. You were saying you don't want to just look down, but look down at your feet and you will see these little uh, manhole covers there with a kind of an indigenous design on them. And you'll say, ah, that's what this place was. Exactly. And of course, if you look at the history of the, the, the Northwest is really where we are, mm -hmm. it's all done by the railroad. It was the Transcontinental Railroad is what really got here. Well, yeah, you know, two things. One is the 49th parallel of north latitude, which was the boundary between the United States and Canada. And so you imagine, had there not been that boundary, would there have been a city the size of Seattle, two hours south of Vancouver? So, you know, you look at that, but because Vancouver, the harbor of Vancouver and the, the Fraser River coming out and the Delta and all of that, it's the closest thing just north of the U.S. border. So you're going to have a city and you're going to call it Canada. You're going to put that uh, right there. <laughs> and, of course, you have, you have the harbor. I mean, this is a significant port. This is where it all happened. Yeah, it's apparently the 10th the largest port in North America in terms of the volume of cargo that goes through it. So a lot of grain, thank the Panama Canal for that one. Uh, a lot of grain has been going through here for more than a century. 
um, big resource exports and and so on and so forth. Um, so it's that's a big part of it. And then you mentioned the scenery and the tourism aspect of it. So a lot of cruise ships coming in here. The other thing, Michael, is that if you really want to see Canada, I mean, they still do it. You do you do cross Canada by train. You can still do oh. it. It's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. And and apparently there's no Wi-Fi on the train, and so people actually talk to each other. Whoa, whoa! I mean, what would that News be like? Bulletin. That's this is like time travel. So it's not just crossing that that distance, but it's like time travel. You've got Chinatown. You've got so much of the history that, as we said in the last segment, that was de- that was destined by the railroad. But then you have the the water, and and you have this, the the majestic mountains that you cannot ignore. You you're just looking out and seeing them every day. Yeah, even in the summer, they're snow capped. Yeah, yeah, snow snow on them for at least nine ten months of the year, even yeah. with climate change. So for you, what's the the biggest history historical surprise when people come to visit Vancouver that they're not expecting? Well, I think probably I would get people to go out into the neighborhoods that are the old ones from 100, 120 years ago that were set up by the streetcars. So Kitsilano, Mount Pleasant, Grandview. So Grandview has commercial drive with something like 90 restaurants and cafes within about 15 blocks. These are areas that they're they're walkable neighborhoods from the time before people had cars. So they're set up around the pedestrian and the streetcar. Streetcar's now been replaced by trolley buses. But you get out there, you can walk on the streets. There are great big trees, so dappled sunlight on the sidewalks and on the gardens, old wooden houses, some brightly painted, all kinds of mums and kids and all that sort of thing and uh, stop for coffee uh, go to a bakery go to a bar listen to some live music this sort of thing so there are these areas and they are within about 20 minutes of downtown and you will probably not see anybody identifiably another tourist if you go there so uh, another visitor that's a, that's I should a plus. say yeah exactly and and you know and even if you were to stay on the downtown peninsula so kind of figure the geography of Vancouver that there's that downtown and waterfront and there's this area between the the downtown and Stanley Park called the West End. And West End has got some big buildings and some small buildings, but it's those walkable neighborhood streets and you stumble upon a little cafe, a corner store that is still there. And you can watch how people live. And it's not just people in spandex zooming around on bikes it's people old people and walkers so so you can you can just imagine how the neighborhood works if you walk in those sorts of areas and of course if you walk in those areas it's inevitable you will talk in those areas because you'll have conversations and people do still smile there are still people in vancouver who aren't looking at their phones when they're walking and so they will engage you and and uh you know it's it's friendly like parts of the states are friendly you know where you just you know you can't you can't do anything without somebody saying where are you from or or so on and and there's still that in vancouver in terms of preserving the history here what's been your big been your biggest challenge Oh, the idea that Vancouver is a pokey little town out on the Pacific Ocean that could really be fixed up if it were made to look more like, I don't know, name me a big city with all kinds of tall uh, glass sure. and concrete towers. So, I mean, it could be Kuala Lumpur or, or, or Shanghai or Hong Kong or not necessarily just an Asian city. But, uh, you know, think of people, and, and there's always been this thing in Vancouver that this is a place that you would come and make money, and you wouldn't make money by 
putting in a factory, you would make money by trading real estate. And so the biggest issue has been to try to get people to value what was here and say, yeah, it was modest. Mm, yeah, it's you know, not, the, not the greatest thing in the world. No, this isn't Paris and everything, but it is important. Because all of your listeners who travel to places, they travel to places that have layers of history on, I'm guessing. Like you go to Paris and you want to see the layers of history. You go to San Francisco, you see layers of New York City, all of these, Chicago, all of these sorts of places. But if you go to, if you go to a city and it's just all new, I'm, I'm thinking Singapore at the moment, it's just all new, then you're going to look around like crazy and say, where can I go and actually see how people used to live? And then how they've adapted that to now. And so that's really been our biggest challenge. Yeah, my issue with Singapore is their definition of progress was to knock down the neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's like, where, I came back one year, I was like, where did it go? The fun left. Yeah. The fun left. Mm-hmm. Right? The, yeah. All the nooks and crannies, there were none. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you look, I mean, you look around Kuala Lumpur, for example, and, and uh, you know, you look, for, you look for the little barrio, you look for the little area there, and then you go there. Streets are full of people. You know, there's just people, people getting on with their lives. I mean, that's what I travel for, you travel for, and I'm sure the listeners travel for. So in order to maintain the history that you do here and that you have here, what's your next step? It's just a constant thing. You know, Vancouver attracts people from all over the world. And so to say in as many different languages and to as many different cultures we have, you're creating your own history when you arrive here. Let's look at how we can work together to keep the history here. You mentioned Chinatown when you were coming here. Well, Chinatown has really been under all kinds of stress, of, uh, of, of disorder, of all of the problems that all cities are having in North America. But they're with, working with hard to preserve everything. it. They're working really hard to preserve it. And uh, so, you know, it's that type of thing. How can we add history to this place rather than erasing what we've got? My thanks to Michael. I have to admit it. I love Canadian museums, from the Museum of Fine Arts in Montreal to the Vancouver Museum in the West. The exhibits are always a welcome surprise. Vivian Goslin, the curator of contemporary culture, takes us inside. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Vivian, welcome. Hello. You know, I have a rule, and I'm going to give you my museum rule. Okay. And the museum rule actually started not that far from here, at least in terms of country, in Montreal at the Museum of Fine Arts. Many years ago, I was in Montreal, and I had an opportunity 
to visit the museum, and I was being very cavalier about it, saying, oh, I, I can't just go spend hours at a museum. My eyes will glaze over, and all right, I'll go for an hour. Well, I got there, and I saw the most remarkable exhibit that so blew me away, I changed my trip and went every day for four days. Wow. Um, what they had done is they had found the original drawings of, uh, of you-know-who, right? Oh, Michelangelo or no, Da Vinci? Da Vinci. Uh-huh. And, and it wasn't just finding the original drawings in his workbooks. They then built what he had, what he had drawn. The maquette. Unbelievable. As you walked from room to room, you realized this guy had invented the helicopter but didn't know it. He invented structural support systems and buildings that are still being used today. It was so mind-blowing. And I made my decision then that if I was going to go to a city, I wasn't going to hit six museums. I was going to hit one. And my eyes would no longer glaze over, and I'd have that moment. And so I apply that, of course, to the Museum of Vancouver as well. That's great. Thanks for sharing that moment. It's true. So, but most people who visit Vancouver don't get to the museum. They, you know, it, it's, it's sort of like they're here to do other things. It's, it, and, and yet you had so much to offer there. Correct. I mean, Vancouver is a, a beautiful postcard when it's sunny. And I totally get it. People love the outdoor and... And yet, like, it provides context even to the outdoor when you come into the Museum of Vancouver. Now, that accent means you're from Quebec. Well, when you talked about Montreal, uh, yes, this is where I'm from. I came uh, to BC um, a few decades ago. Why, why, why British Columbia? Well, I think like most Quebecers, when you're a summer student, you want to come to British Columbia and plant trees. Um, I landed in Vancouver and fell in love with the city and decided that I would not plant trees, but I would actually spend the summer in Vancouver, get to know the city, go to the Museum of Vancouver. There you go. And, um, and yeah, I haven't looked back sincerely. I just I was doing grad school at the time and transferred everything and so I could settle in, in Vancouver. And by the way, the museum, over 100 years old, mm-hmm. started in 1894. Correct. Right, and it's grown. Yes. So, you know, like many uh, museums from the 1800s, it grew from like a small historical society with, you know, educated people, people with money, with means uh, to travel. They would go out in the world and bring back um, gems and trophies and, um, you know, natural history specimen. And, you know, 100 years ago, no Netflix, no, uh, you know, no TV. So that was one way. That was freedom. Yeah, freedom. Great, you know, people focused at the time. They were able to come to the museum and learn about things they would never get to see probably in their life, lifetime if it wasn't uh, for uh, seeing the objects in an exhibition. Well, here's the astounding thing to me about the Museum of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. You have over 74,000 items in storage, mm-hmm. and at any given time, you're only displaying like 5% of them. Yeah, this is the, this is the, the story of many museums, and partly because of uh, conservation and preservation. So the idea is that we want to keep um, material culture um, you know, well-preserved for hundreds of years. And for that reason, it has to stay in the dark in climate control environment. So we get to see it when we have, you know, we want to tell a story, provide context, and then these uh, objects emerge. You just said the magic word, provide context, mm-hmm. right? Because if you don't understand the context, you'll never understand what you're looking at. Correct. 
Yeah, so documentation, cataloging of objects is super important. And storytelling. Storytelling and revisiting, right? Like what an object meant 100 years ago doesn't mean the same. Give me, give me an example. Well, um, so history is, not, is about the past, but really it is about contextualizing the present. So the kind of questions that we ask of objects is different. Right. So at the time, for example, there was a lot of collecting uh, political and military history. It was a lot about, uh, you know, white men uh, doing. Oh, say that uh, again. White uh, men. <laughs> <laughs> it's but, the history yeah, of yeah. white men. Yeah. Well, there was, was a lot of that. Yeah. And then, you know, so again, uh, so there were a lot of things that weren't collected. We have gaps today as well. A hundred years from now, people will say, why didn't they collect this or that? Right. But at the moment, we're kind of revisiting those collections, asking new questions, asking new people to look at those objects. You see, I would like to open a museum called It Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time Museum. Oh, yeah. Actually, I would <laughs> love to visit that museum. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the curator, by the way. Uh-huh, it's yeah. called my wife telling me to get rid of all the stuff I just keep collecting. Yeah. Uh, but when you're the, the curator of contemporary mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. define that to me. Okay, so again, it's to provide context. So we're living in this beautiful city, um, and we want to understand, for example, the urban planning behind it. Uh, we want to understand, uh, I don't know about you, where are you coming from, but social housing is, is a big thing. Food security, I heard you talking about insecure, food insecurity. So we're talking about the, you know, some of the source of some of the problems that are defining, shaping our, our, our city. It's also um, about, like I was just mentioning, making space for voices that haven't been heard uh, before. So we opened um, a few months ago an exhibition that was kind of looking at the diasporic um, story of the Chinese immigration, right? So we, we had some objects in our collection, but we also actively collected uh, what knowledge holders in the community told us to collect because it was significant for them, and we didn't see that. Now, you have time. an exhibit there called That Which Sustains Us. Correct. That just, uh, Which Sustains Us looks at the changing relationship people have with the forest. Um, well, Assuming they, there's still a forest left. Correct. Thank you. Yes. So we know that Greater Vancouver is now like the, the um, biggest, largest clear cut in British Columbia. But it was uh, a huge forest um, prior to European um, settlement. Large, dense forest full of, of um, uh, Douglas uh, firs, uh, red cedar, uh, you know, your typical rainforest. Um, a forest that had been managed for, for thousands of years. And in the 1860s, we had the first kind of arrival of, um, of Europeans wanting to, well, establish themselves, but mostly looking at the forest as, as a potential uh, resource. And uh, essentially, uh, the, the wood was harvested to uh, build uh, buildings around the world, really. And so it's, it's that relationship, that if you don't figure it out, you lose it. Correct. So, I mean, the big story behind that is your worldview uh, and how you relate to nature will determine how you treat nature. So if you treat nature as an extension of your family, uh, you won't hurt it. You'll take care of it. If you see nature and forest as a commodity, well, it makes total sense to cut it and sell it, right? I hope not. My thanks to Vivienne. Now, to understand Vancouver, you really must appreciate the Chinese influence and the fight to preserve that culture. Carol Lee, who runs the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation, is on the front lines to maintain, restore, and most importantly, preserve this amazing part of the city's history. Carol, welcome. 
Thank you very much for having me on your show. You heard my introduction. When I talk about Chinatown, we can talk about Chinatown in New York. We can talk about Chinatown in San Francisco. I mean, these are distinct, culturally uh, preserved locations in the city, but they're always at risk. And there's always at risk because of development. They're always at risk because of, of gentrification, if you will, um, and the loss of, its, of their cultural heritage. And that's exactly what you guys are doing. That is the mission of the uh, Chinatown Foundation, is basically to help revitalize the neighborhood, uh, but preserving its irreplaceable cultural heritage. And of course, if you look at the history of, of, uh, of Chinatown here, it, to me, uh, he just recently passed away, Gordon Lightfoot, the, the, the Canadian singer. One of, one of my favorite songs that he wrote was the Canadian Railroad Trilogy. And it was how they built the railroad from the east to the west. And that was all Chinese labor, right? Well, it was definitely Chinese labor for the most difficult part. So um, part of you know Confederation or a condition of making this Canada country was that the eastern part of Canada had to connect to British Columbia all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And that probably would not have happened had they not got the Chinese labor. They were paid probably one-tenth the, uh, the wage, given the most difficult backbreaking work. And, um, but the thing is, is that after they completed this uh, incredible feat, they were basically kind of left to, on their own. So abandoned. The abandoned and unwanted. So the reason Chinatown started was they basically did have, they didn't have anywhere to go. And so they ended up forming a community on the, on the sort of the, the banks of this swamp, um, this uh, False Creek. And that's how Chinatown became. So I think that for me, this is why this particular Chinatown is an very important one, because it is the physical legacy of that contribution and sacrifice. Which continues to this day. Absolutely. And of course, let's, let's be honest about this. The building of the railroad killed a lot of people. It did. I think the folklore is, you know, one man died for every mile of track laid. Not a good, not a good, no. good percentage. And, you know, the interesting thing is that even though that they had made this big contribution, um, nobody really knew the story. So after they completed the railroad, uh, they instituted a head tax. And then, but the Chinese kept coming. And so in 1923, they institute, it instituted the Exclusion Act. Uh, but that kind of didn't stop them from coming in. And so the Chinese were really, they saw a future in, in Canada. They wanted to come. And uh, they decided that even though they were not citizens, they would fight for Canada in the Second World War. So I think that show of uh, patriotism um, sort of paved the way for them to fight for the right to vote for all minorities. And, and that basically that happened in 1947. And has the actual square footage, the footprint of Chinatown, actually increased? No, actually, to the contrary, it's decreased. And I think what happened is that, you know, the success of the Chinese or ability to integrate into uh, society allowed them to move to uh, different neighborhoods. Like when my father was growing up, he was born in 1933, you really weren't allowed to live outside of uh, Chinatown. And in fact, I grew up in a neighborhood that still on land title says, you know, no Chinese allowed. So that was in the agreements. It was in the agreements. It's still in the agreements. They haven't changed it yet, but I'm sure that this is this will happen. Um, but so I, I think that through their success, they ended up sort of dispersing in in different neighborhoods, and and that's why in in some ways 
it was uh, it was a victim of its own success. So people started moving away. But it's still here. It's still here. And I think that, you know, for me, and I don't know, I think other people might be like this as well, is that you don't realize how important something might be until you're at the risk of losing it. And I think that we were on the verge of risking, uh, of losing Chinatown. And a lot of people from the city, Chinese and non-Chinese who had grown up here said, this is an important part of the social fabric of the city. And we want to do something to save it. You know, I was in Hong Kong, Carol, uh, many, many times, as you were. But I was also there specifically to report on the handover back in 1997. It seems like yesterday Mm -hmm. when they lowered the the British flag and up the Chinese flag. And Chris Patton, the Hong Kong governor, was there with Prince Charles. And the Britannia sort of limped into the harbor and limped out. and, And from that moment on, all things changed. But actually, way before that date, so many Chinese left Hong Kong. And where did they come? Vancouver. You were the main port of entry for the brain drain, if you will, of, of, the, of the smart people, really. And, 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 and here they come yeah. to Vancouver. And that's still happening today. Well, in, in different ways. But we were really um, fortunate that this uh, wave of immigrants from Hong Kong, uh, many who decided that they, want, they were worried about what the future of Hong Kong was going to be, ended up in, uh, in Vancouver. And, and I think that we've been lucky. This is a very ethnically diverse city um, that was, you know, was preceded by a, a wave of immigrants from Taiwan and then it was um, Hong Kong and, and now we're seeing more people from Hong Kong and some from mainland you know, China. In the last segment, we were talking about the Exclusion Act, how there are deeds and, and still things on the books saying no Chinese allowed. Then came COVID-19 and you had a, a backlash again. Well, you know, so from my Chinatown lens, it, you know, it was already difficult before going into COVID. Um, sort of the decline of, of, of business, a lot of businesses moving out. The location of Chinatown, uh, it's right next door to uh, a, a challenged area called the downtown east side. So um, it was already limping along, but COVID really exacerbated the problems with the rise of anti-Asian racism and, and people, you know, didn't want to go out, period. And so definitely Chinatown was not a place that they were going to put on the top of their list. So, so it was, we were really worried about the future of Chinatown, but the city really rallied, I would say, and, and lots of support. And I, I am very excited that right now we've got an alignment from all three levels of government. So um, I think that the future of Chinatown is, I think in Vancouver is no longer at risk. I think it's just how do we want it to develop? What kind of vibrancy do we want to have? Um, and so, can you still preserve the legacy and the culture? Well, that's the fine line of, you know, my business partner used to say, you know, development without preservation is just as bad as preservation with no development. So you, you want to try and th- keep things moving, but that the, the, the anchoring in cultural heritage and legacy is so critically important. And I think that's what most Chinatowns, I think, are probably battling with, um, that fine line. You know, and it's, it's yes, it, it's a challenge and it, it is a battle. Yeah. So the question that I have to ask you, which, which of course, being the visitor here, is, I mean, it's going to sound so stereotypical, but do you get the best Chinese food in Chinatown? <laughs> well, there's some really good Chinese food, but if you're saying um, any kind of food, yes, we, we, they, they launched Michelin Guide. I'll uh, tell you the reason why I asked that yeah. question. When I lived in San Francisco and I'd walk through Chinatown anytime after nine o'clock at night, 
I could hear from the second floor windows the mahjong being played, right? You could hear the chips coming down. And I figured, I got to go up there. And that's where the, that was, that's where the food was, right? You, go, you went to the second floor. Well, you know, New York Times had an article, I think it was three or four years ago, saying the best Chinese food outside of China was in Richmond. So that is a suburb of, of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. And that is probably true. And, and I think that part of my goal is that I said within five years, we have to say we have to have that rewritten. Hopefully it will say the best Chinese food is in Vancouver's Chinatown. So um, actually, I part of this revitalization effort, I opened a restaurant. So it's called Chinatown Barbecue. And my father was very, very against it. No, no, no. You why are you thinking you're, you want to open a restaurant, you know, sort of plagued with failure. But actually, I'm very happy. Five years later, it is according to Google reviews, the highest rated Chinese restaurant in Vancouver. Well, I have to but, tell you this, and this is going to sound, again, stereotypical. The worst Beijing duck I ever had was in Beijing. <laughs> and the best was in Chinatown. Yeah. So I think that, you know, now that there's this renewed interest, this, this idea that the neighborhood could be revitalized, I think we will be able to bring those kinds of businesses back into Vancouver, Chinatown. And there are some that are there. Um, interesting, not Chinese food, but... Uh, Cambodian food. I, I remember when Julia Child was here in the ni- 1990s, the two restaurants she went to, Nam Pen and um, I think the other one was La Crocodile. And it's still, so Michelin was just here. And one they, was Cambodian and one was Vietnamese. Yes. So, so, so it's coming. I, I do think that. Right now you can find good Chinese food. Is it the best in the city? Not yet. But you're getting there. We're getting there. Listen, I always have a great time when I come here. Last quick question for you. What's your biggest challenge? The perception that Chinatown is not a safe place. And I think that once people come down, they see it very differently. But um, come and visit us and and see it for yourself. And look for a barbecue place. (laughs) (laughs) My thanks to Carol Lee, to Vivianne, and to Michael. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast from Vancouver. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, and the hits keep coming, you know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News Business Analyst, Certified Financial Planner, and host of the Money Watch Podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. 